0: This recording is a service of the Allen County Public Library's audio reading service. It is specifically designed for and directed to people who have visual, physical, learning, or language challenges to reading traditional printed materials. Welcome to The Economist, offering authoritative insight and opinion on international news, politics, business, finance, science, and technology. Stay tuned for the go-to magazine for great minds around the globe, right here on your audio reading service. Welcome. This is a reading of The Economist, and I'm your reader, Mary Kiefer, with the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Today, I'll be reading from The Economist. And now I'll begin with China's EV Onslaught. And this is the January 13th through the 19th issue. Is China about to unleash another wave of deindustrialization on the rich world? About one million American manufacturing workers lost their jobs to Chinese competition in 1997 through 2011 as the country integrated into the global trading system and began shipping cheap goods overseas. This China shock has since been blamed for everything from rising deaths among working-class Americans to the election of Donald Trump. The rejection of liberal attitudes to trade also explains why politicians embrace industrial policy today. Now, China's car makers are enjoying an astonishing rise. That stokes fear of another ruinous shock. In fact, the successes of Chinese cars should be celebrated, not feared. Just five years ago, China shipped only a quarter as many cars as Japan, then the world's biggest exporter. This week, the Chinese industry claimed to have exported over 5 million cars in 2023. Exceeding the Japanese total. China's biggest car maker, BYD, sold... .5 million electric vehicles in the fourth quarter, leaving Tesla in the dust. Chinese EVs are so snazzy, whizzy, and most important, cheap, that the constraint on their export today is the scarcity of vessels for shipping them. As the world decarbonizes, demand will rise further. By 2030, China could double its share of the global market to a third, ending the dominance of the West's national champions, especially in Europe. This time, it will be even easier for politicians to pin the blame for any Western job losses on Chinese foul play. A frosty geopolitical climate will feed the sentiment that subsidized production unfairly puts Western workers on the scrap heap. And there have been certainly subsidies. Since the launch of its Made in China agenda in 2014, China has brazenly disregarded global trading rules, showering handouts on its car makers. It is hard to be precise about the value of the underpriced loans, equity injections, purchase subsidies, and government contracts Chinese firms enjoy. But by one estimate, total public spending on the industry was in the region of a third of each. EV sales at the end of the 2010s. These subsidies come on top of the ransacking of technology from joint ventures with Western car makers and Western and South Korean battery makers. The temptation will therefore be for rich world policymakers to shield their car makers from the onslaught of state-backed competition. In October, the European Commission opened an investigation into Chinese cars. President Joe Biden is said to be considering increasing tariffs on them, even though America's car makers, protected by a 27.5% levy and handouts from the Inflation Reduction Act, currently face little Chinese competition. Yet locking out Chinese cars would be a mistake. The potential gains to the West from a ready supply of cheap green vehicles are simply enormous and dwarf the cost of disruption and the dangers it brings. One reason is that the market for cars is going to be upended regardless of trade with China. In 2022, 16 to 18 percent of new cars sold around the world were electric. In 2035, the EU will ban the sale of new cars with internal combustion engines. Though firms are retaining their workers as they switch to making EVs, the process is less labor-intensive. Much as the first China shock, was responsible for less than a fifth of total manufacturing job losses occurring at the time, many of which were attributable to welcome technological advances, so too there is a danger of of confusing disruption caused by the shift to EVs with that caused by Chinese production of them. Next, consider the gains from letting trade flow. Vehicles are among people's biggest purchases, accounting for about 7% of American consumption. Cheaper cars mean more money to spend on other things, at a time when real wages have been squeezed by inflation. And Chinese cars are not only cheap, they are better quality, particularly with respect to the smart features in EVs that are made possible by internet connectivity. Nor does the existence of a car-making industry determine a country's economic growth. Denmark has among the world's highest living standards without a car-maker to speak of. Even as cars roll off Chinese assembly lines, the economy is sputtering, in part because it has been so distorted by subsidies and state control. Last, consider the benefits to the environment. Politicians around the world are realizing just what a tall order it is to ask consumers to go green as a backlash against costly emissions reductions policies builds. EVs, too, are currently more expensive than gas-guzzling cars, even if their running costs are lower. Embracing Chinese cars with lower prices could therefore ease the transition to net zero emissions. The cheapest EV sold in China, by BYD, costs around $12,000, compared with $39,000 for the cheapest Tesla in America. <clears throat> What about the risks? The threat to industry from cheap imports is usually overblown. The lesson from the rise of Japanese and South Korean car makers in the 1980s is that competition spurs local firms to shift up a gear, while the entrants eventually move production closer to consumers. Already, BYD is opening a factory in Hungary, and many Chinese car makers are scouting for sites in North America. Meanwhile, the likes of Ford and Volkswagen are racing to catch Chinese firms. Last year, Toyota said a breakthrough in its solid-state technology would let it slash the weight and cost of its batteries. Another worry is national security. Depending entirely on China for batteries, whose importance to electrified economies will go far beyond cars, would be risky. It is also possible that uh, EVs, which are filled with chips, sensors, and cameras, could be used for surveillance. China has banned even locally-made Teslas from some government properties. But so long as presidents and spooks can travel in vehicles made in the West or by its allies, there is little reason to fear consumers sporting Chinese wheels. They can adjudicate personal privacy concerns themselves, and locally-made cars will be easier to inspect. Policymakers should therefore curb their protectionist instincts and worry only in the unlikely event that western car makers implode altogether a hefty market share for chinese car makers that invigorates wider competition however is not to be feared If China wants to spend taxpayers' money subsidizing global consumers and speeding up the energy transition, the best response is to welcome it. Start writing checks. It is certainly difficult to make money, but should money be difficult to give away? In the Gilded Age, industrialists such as Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller worried about waste and misuse. Carnegie wrote in 1889 that $950 of every $1,000 that went to charity was unwisely spent. Around the turn of the millennium, a new cor- cohort of businessmen philanthropists, such as Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, looked to data and rules as a way to stop waste. Donors ran lengthy application processes, provided funds that were ring fenced for specific uses, and enforced painstaking reporting requirements. In 2006, The Economist called it Philanthrocapitalism. Two decades on, however, it has become clear that all this paperwork puts the brakes on giving. The 400 richest Americans have given away just 6% of their combined fortunes, according to Forbes. At the last count in 2022, almost $1.2 trillion was sitting in American private foundations, and 20 230 billion in donor advised funds, a sort of savings account for philanthropists. Plenty of money is being earmarked for do goodery, but it is not getting to worthy causes fast enough. Fortunately, a new generation of donors is once again shaking up the world of big philanthropy as we explore in our special report this week. A series of crises from the COVID-19 pandemic to the wars in Ukraine and the Middle East has spurred some donors to get money to the needy quickly. Leading the charge is Mackenzie Scott, who came into a tidy fortune in 2019 after her divorce from Jess Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, she has outsourced the grunt work of philanthropy to advisors, simplified the process of giving and is dishing out billions of dollars a year with f- few conditions. This no-strings giving is upending mega donors long-held assumptions. It offers lessons for those struggling to get money out of the door. One of the recognition that philanthropists do not have to do everything themselves mega donors no longer need to endure the hassle of setting up a foundation and hiring staff and upsides of a decades-long trend for business-like philanthropy is that legions of consultants have emerged to help donors draw up a strategy and to conduct due diligence on potential recipients donors can team up and share the work too Another lesson from the No Strings crowd is that philanthropists can trust recipients to put money to good use once the proper due diligence is in place. That means analyzing a nonprofit organization's annual reports and interviewing its leaders and other funders. Once the grant has been made, however, donors who ask for regular reports containing specific data presented in a certain format risk slowing projects down. Ms. Scott asks some grant writers to send her a short update every year that includes whatever information they have to hand. Any nonprofit worth funding wants to be sure its work is having the intended effect. It will almost certainly have enough internal data and evaluation to satisfy donors. Last, mega donors do not have to make all the decisions. Many big shot philanthropists spend a lot of time and money crafting projects and strategizing about how exactly money could be used. Unrestricted donations, by contrast, allow nonprofit groups to judge where funds are most needed. That makes sense. The people working on the front lines are likely to have the better ideas on how to solve a problem. No strings giving may not be for everyone. There will always be donors who want to roll up their sleeves and get involved. But the new generation of donors shows that money can be spent both quickly and wisely. Philanthropy can be as simple as signing on the dotted line. On the wane. A lawsuit in New York may shake up the National Rifle Association. Wayne's World is how Monica Connell, a lawyer with the New York State Attorney General's office, described how the National Rifle Association operated for decades. On January 8th, during the opening statement of the state's civil trial against the NRA, Wayne LaPierre, who has headed the gun rights organization since 1991, and two other former and current top executives, Ms. Connell said, this case is about corruption. The lawsuit, filed by Letitia James, New York's Attorney General, accuses the NRA's leadership of instituting a culture of mismanagement and negligence, which benefited themselves, family, friends, and certain vendors, and caused the organization to lose more than $63 million, much of it donated by gun owners. The state alleges that Mr. LaPierre and the others used NRA money on luxury travel, including private jets, and did not declare expensive gifts, including African safaris and yacht trips. And, Ms. Connell said, Mr. LaPierre retaliated against anyone who questioned him. Oliver North, a former NRA president, pushed out in 2019, is expected to testify. Ms James first filed suit against the n r a in august twenty twenty seeking to dissolve it. The organization is chartered by New York State, where it was founded in eighteen seventy one in the wake of the Civil War, as it is registered as a charity in New York, it is under Ms James's jurisdiction and watchful eye. A judge blocked her effort to disband the NRA, but said she should pursue other avenues, as if proven. But allegations tell a grim story of greed, self-dealing, and lax financial oversight at the highest levels. The NRA unsuccessfully filed for bankruptcy in Texas. A judge there ruled that the organization was solvent and had filed only to evade mismanagement allegations in New York. The NRA, Mr. LaPierre, and the other plaintiffs deny Enti any wrongdoing. Mr. LaPierre's lawyer said his client took private jets because of death threats. As for the yacht excursions, well, who wouldn't want to go on a yacht? The NRA, for its part, appeared to be distancing itself from Mr. LaPierre. In her opening statement, the group's lawyer praised him as a visionary, but also stressed that the NRA is not Wayne LaPierre. The association was founded to improve marksmanship and training, and later also promoted safety. But in large part because of Mr. LaPierre, it has morphed into a powerful lobby for gun rights. It spent millions to help Donald Trump get elected in 2016 but it has struggled with falling revenue, falling membership, and infighting. Mr. LaPierre announced his resignation on January 5th, citing health reasons. How much this will change is unclear. The executives who remain are LaPierre loyalists. The interim head is his spokesperson and one of his closest advisors. But if the NRA loses the suit, there is a good chance that the people who put the organization into this position will be removed by a state overseer. Stephen Gutowski, the founder of The Reload, an independent publication focused on firearms policy and politics, points to the obvious irony. The lawsuit, which started out seeking to dismantle the NRA, may be the best chance the NRA has for surviving. No Laughing Matter, a comical effort by the intelligence agency out of Beijing. Foreign spies are lurking everywhere. So says the Chinese government. Officials were ruffled by the CIA's claim made last year that it was rebuilding its spy networks in China a decade after most of its sources disappeared. But China's reaction seems defined more by paranoia than vigilance. The National Intelligence Agency, the Ministry of State Security, wants the entire population to be on the lookout for spies. To improve public awareness, the ministry has launched an online comic strip called Shenyin in Special Investigation Squad. It will feature heart-pounding action, say China Spooks. The first installment, released on January 7th, shows the capture and interrogation of a blond haired man, seemingly foreign, who is suspected of breaking the country's counter-espionage law. It also introduces the members of the Shenyan team. Among them are a tech geek named Ajay. He wears glasses and enjoys bubble tea and a martial arts whiz named Dandan. She is a long-haired police officer. An agent named Lao Tan has 20 years of experience in the field of security and an unspecified set of skills. One imagines they are very particular, a nightmare for certain people. The first installment ends with the team investigating suspicious activity in the Shishan mining area. According to the MSS, the story is inspired by actual counterespionage cases. The intelligence agency is working hard to help the seeds of national security to take root and sprout in the minds of young people. Last year, it joined WeChat, a popular messaging app where it shares stories of devious foreign spies at work. Now it is creating comics, but such propaganda efforts with their predictable themes and lack of subtlety are usually met with indifference or even derision from the intended audience. Still, the comic strip serves a purpose, reinforcing the impression that any interaction between Chinese people and foreigners will be viewed with suspicion by the government. Last year, it expanded the counter-espionage law, banning the transfer of information related to security and national interests, which it did not define. The European Chamber of Commerce in China cited uncertainty over the scope of the law as one reason why its members were losing confidence in China's business environment. Other moves by by the government have added to the fertile atmosphere. In 2015, officials set up a hotline that ordinary citizens could use to report their suspicions. Some local governments offer big rewards for tips on espionage cases. China established an annual National Security Education Day years ago. Though, according to the MSS, publication of the comic was timed to coincide with Police Day on January 10th. To some Chinese, the comic is a worthwhile piece of propaganda. One of the country's best-known nationalist commentators, Hu Jin, wrote on social media that the security services should speak more about the threat of espionage and highlight the cases they've cracked. But he also warned that they should go too far. They should not go too far, lest China cut itself off from the world. That, he said, would be like not eating for fear of choking. Shump Peter School Experiments AI is giving techies another shot at transforming education. As pupils and students return to classrooms and lecture halls for the new year, it is striking to reflect on how little education has changed in recent decades. Laptops and interactive whiteboards hardly constitute disruption. Many parents, bewildered by how their children shop or socialize, would be unruffled by how they are taught. The sector remains a digital laggard. American schools and universities spend around 2 to 5% 5 of their budgets, respectively, on technology, compared with 8% for the average American company. Techies have long coveted a bigger share of the $16 the world spends each year on education. When the pandemic forced schools and universities to shut down, the moment for a digital offensive seemed nigh. Students flocked to online learning platforms to plug gaps left by stilted Zoom glasses. The market value of Chegg, a provider of online tutoring, jumped from $5 billion at the start of 2020 to $12 billion a year later. Bajus, an Indian peer, soared to a private valuation of $22 billion in March 2022 as it snapped up other providers across the world. Global venture capital investment in education-related startups jumped from $7 billion in 2019 to $20 billion in 2021, according to Crunchbase, a data provider. Then, once COVID was brought to heel, classes resumed much as before. By the end of 2022, Chegg's market value had slumped back to $3 billion. Early last year, investment firms, including including BlackRock and Process, started marking down the value of their stakes in Baiju's as its losses mounted. In hindsight, we grew a bit too big, a bit too fast, admits Devia Gokolnick, the company's co founder. If the pandemic couldn't overcome the education sector's resistance to digital disruption, can artificial intelligence, chat, PGT, like generative AI, which can converse cleverly on a wide variety of subjects, certainly looks the part. So much so that educationalists began to panic that students would use it to cheat on essays and homework. In January 2023, New York banned Chat PT Chat GPT from public schools. Increasingly, however, it is generating excitement as a means to provide personalized tutoring to students and speed up tedious tasks such as marketing. By May, New York had let the bot back into classrooms. Learners, for their part, are embracing the technology. Two-fifths of undergraduates surveyed last year by Chegg reported using an AI chatbot to help them with their studies, with half of those using it daily. Indeed, the technology's popularity has raised awkward questions for companies like Chegg, whose share price plunged last May after Dan Rosenwig, its chief executive, told investors it was losing customers to ChatGPT. Yet there are good reasons to believe that education specialists who harness AI will eventually prevail over generalists such as OpenAI, the maker of ChatGPT, and other tech firms eyeing the education business. For one, AI chatbots have a bad habit of sprouting nonsense, an unhelpful trait in an educational context. Students want content from trusted providers, argues Kate Edwards, chief pedagogist at Pearson, a textbook publisher. The company has not allowed chat, GPT, and other AIs to ingest its material, but has instead used the content to train its own models, which is embedding into its suite of learning apps. Rivals, including McGraw-Hill, are taking a similar approach. Chegg has likewise developed its own AI bot called CheggMate that it has trained on its ample data set of questions and answers. What is more, as Chegg's Mr. Rosenwig argues, teaching is not merely about giving students an answer, but about presenting it in a way that helps them learn. Understanding pedagogy thus gives education specialists an edge, Pearson has designed its A1 tools to engage students by breaking complex topics down, testing their understanding, and providing quick feedback, says Ms. Edwards. Baiju's is incorporating forgetting curves for students into the design of its A1 tutoring tools, refreshing their memories at personalized intervals. Chatbots must also be tailored to different age groups to avoid either bamboozling or infantilizing students. Specialists that have already forged relationships with risk-averse educational institutions will have the added advantage of being able to embed AI into otherwise familiar products. Anthology, a maker of education software, has incorporated generative AI features into its Blackboard Learn program to help teachers speedily create course outlines, rubrics, and tests. Established suppliers are also better placed to instruct teachers on how to make use of AI's capabilities. Bringing AI to education will not be easy. Although teachers have endured a COVID-induced crash course in education technology, many are still behind the learning curve. Less than a fifth of British educators surveyed by Pearson last year reported receiving training on digital learning tools. Tight budgets at many institutions will make selling new technology an uphill battle. AI skeptics will have to be won over, and new AI-powered tools may be needed to catch AI-powered cheating. Thorny questions will inevitably arise as to what all this means for the jobs of teachers. Their attention may need to shift toward motivating students and instructing them on how to best work with AI tools. We owe the industry answers on how to harness this technology, declares Bruce Dahlgren, boss of Anthology. If those answers can be provided, it is not just companies like Mr. Dahlgren's that stand to benefit. An influential paper from eight. 1984 by Benjamin Bloom, an educational psychologist, found that one-to-one tutoring both improved the average academic performance of students and reduced the variance between them. AI could at last make individual tutors viable for the many. With the learning of students, especially those from poorer households, set back by the upheaval of the pandemic, such a development would certainly deserve top marks. Slippers in the Oval Office. Heart attacks, strokes, and mental decline. Can Joe Biden and Donald Trump beat the odds? Age, they say, brings wisdom, but it also brings decrepitude. When the latter begins to outweigh the former, perhaps it is time for even the most ambitious to consider retiring into slippered ease. If either Joe Biden or Donald Trump has contemplated such retirement, though, they have clearly rejected the idea. Instead, both are proposing themselves as candidates for second stints doing one of the most grueling jobs on the planet. Mr. Trump is now 77 and will be 78 come the general election. Mr. Biden is 81 and would be 86 at the end of his term if he won. The most popular scientific explanation of aging, disposable SOMA theory, holds that natural selection hones youth at the expense of age, since this best serves the task of passing genes to the next generation. In both candidates' cases, that has happened. Mr. Biden fathered four children and has seven grandchildren. Mr. Trump fathered five and has ten. But the evolutionary flip side, in the view of many commentators, is becoming apparent in slips, verbal and physical, made by both, but especially by Mr. Biden. Perhaps some suggest the slippers should beckon after all. When it comes to age, Mr. Biden and Mr. Trump are outliers, compared both with other American presidents and with the present heads of government in other countries. When he became president in 2017, Mr. Trump was the oldest person to have done so. That record was superseded in 2021 by Mr. Biden. An analysis published last year by the Pew Research Center, an American think tank, showed that of the 187 countries for which data are available, only eight had leaders older than Biden. The oldest is Paul Baia of Cameroon, who is 90. Among the rich democracies of the OECD, the trend since 1950 has been for heads of government to get younger. The average age upon taking up the top job has fallen from 60.2 to 55.5 in the past half century. How likely are Mr. Biden or Mr. Trump to last the course? That is a matter with many variables. Not all of the relevant personal data are in the public domain, and the science of aging is uncertain. Some studies, for example, suggest that running a country takes its toll. One published in 2015 by researchers at Harvard Medical School and Case Western Reserve University of Medicine looked at elections for head of government in 17 rich countries going back as far as 1722. It concluded that winners live 4.4 fewer years after their last election than did runners up who never held the top job. On the other hand, presidents top the social hierarchy. That can be lifespan enhancing, as numerous investigations, starting with the White's Whitehall Studies conducted between 1967 and 1988 by Michael Marmot of University College London of British Civil Servants show. Possibly the effects balance out. Work published in 2011 by J. Olshansky, a gerontologist at the University of Illinois, estimated the expected mean lifespan for male contemporaries of American presidents based on data from the time to be 73.3 years. The actual lifespans of these presidents who had died of natural causes averaged 73 years. This suggests either the job takes no toll contradicting the Harvard Case Western Reserve study and also other work or that incumbents would otherwise have had more than the average number of years to live. Dr. Olshansky's explanation favoring the latter is that presidents have tended to hail from privileged backgrounds all but 10 he says have been college educated with the health advantages that brings. Death, however, is not the only term-shortening medical event an incumbent might suffer. A debilitating heart attack or stroke might force a resignation or require the invocation of the 25th Amendment to America's Constitution, which deals with presidential incapacity. Broadly speaking, the risk of stroke doubles with each passing decade. That is a worry. Then there is the question of mental well-being. Strokes aside, the passing years bring two threats to the brain, specific dementias such as Alzheimer's disease and a more general slowing of the wheels, though recent research suggests the two may overlap. Medical imaging makes it possible to examine the brain of those without symptoms of dementia for the clumps of misshapen proteins that are one of Alzheimer's characteristics. A study from 2019 by Jonathan Schott, a neurologist at UCL, and his colleagues showed that such plaques still seem to cause harm, even in those without a formal diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Conversely, work published in 2022 by a team from Northwestern University in Chicago looked at neurofibrillary tangles, another Alzheimer's marker. It reported that so called superagers, those lucky enough in the disposable soma genetic lottery to maintain healthy minds in healthy bodies long after others' decrepitude, had fewer of those tangles than did apparently disease free non superagers. Regardless of its cause, though, cognitive decline is the age-related symptom most widely discussed about the candidates, especially in the context of apparent senior moments displayed by both men. In 2021, for instance, Mr. Biden seemed to forget the name of Lloyd Austin, his defense secretary. Mr. Trump has confused Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, with Kim Jong-un, who leads North Korea. Research suggests mental powers change with age in different ways, some declining while others improve, at least for a time. Work by Joshua Hartshorn and Laura Germine of Harvard and the Massachusetts General Hospital, respectively, supports the idea that wisdom does indeed increase with age, up to a point. Arithmetical and comprehension skills as well as vocabulary improve until 50, though they start to decline after that. However, for tasks involving short-term memory, remembering things immediately after presentation, and working memory, remembering them half an hour later, it is downhill from the age of 20 or so. Some scores fall by as much as half a standard deviation below the population mean by the time someone is 85. All this might be grounds for caution when faced with elderly candidates, but Dr. Olshansky at the University of Illinois is having none of it for two reasons. One is the general point he makes about most candidates' privileged backgrounds, granting them a health-promoting environment in which to grow up. The other, specific to Mr. Biden and Mr. Trump, is that he thinks they may be made from sterner genetic stuff than most of their fellow beings. In other words, they are super-agers. Mr. Trump is unquestionably a child of privilege. His father was a multimillionaire businessman. Mr. Biden's family's fortunes were more mixed, but he still had the leg up of being sent to a private school as a teenager. So far, so typical. The superager argument is more intriguing. Four years ago, during the previous Biden Trump contest, Dr. Oshansky and five colleagues analyzed what relevant data they could collect pertaining to the two men. Both come from long lived families, with an octogenarian and a nonagenarian parent each. That is a good predictor of longevity. But Mr. Trump's brothers died at the age of 42 and 71, and his father developed Alzheimer's. Both count against him in the calculation, as do his weight and lack of exercise compared with Mr. Biden. Nevertheless, Dr. Olshansky concluded from these sorts of data, combined with what is publicly available about the men's medical records, that both had a higher than average probability of surviving the following four years. Mr. Biden, they reckoned, had a 95% chance compared with 82% for a typical man of his age. For Mr. Trump, the figures were 90% compared with 86% for his contemporaries. Notably, then, their calculations gave Mr. Trump, the younger man, a worse prognosis. They have not yet fully pronounced on the matter this time around, but Dr. Olshansky stated on January 7th in an article in The Hill, a Washington-based newspaper, that today, Mr. Biden's chances of surviving through a second term in office are close to 75%, about 10% better survival than for an average man his age. Similar, although slightly less favorable, survival prospects are present for Mr. Trump. As to senior moments, Dr. Olshansky is inclined to write at least some of them off as sampling errors resulting from relentless scrutiny. Of an incident in June 2022 in which mister Biden fell off his bicycle, for example, he observes that the president had caught his foot in a pedal strap rather than losing his balance, an accident that might happen to anyone. More pertinent, he said, is the fact that a seventy nine year old, as mister Biden was then, was cycling in the first place. Losing Its Powers In The Avengers 2012, Nick Fury, Samuel L. Jackson, a spy, described heroes as an old-fashioned notion. Certainly, the film's characters, including Captain America and Iron Man, were not novel, first appearing in comic books published in the mid-20th century. But if the idea was old, the excitement around superheroes has been renewed. The Avengers became the first Marvel movie to make more than $1 billion at the global box office. When Fury's words were used in the trailer for the Marvels, however, they took on a different tone. Heroes may seem antiquated, he argued, but the world can still use them. If it was an attempt to to convince the viewer, it did not work. Released in November, the Marvels, the 33rd installment in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, made around $200 million at the box office. It became the poorest performance MCU film to date and will probably lose money. Nor was the Marvels a one-off disappointment. Ant-Man and the Wasp... Quantumania also unperf- underperformed. According to Cinema Score and audience rating benchmark of the post eight MCU films, five have scored B plus or worse. Fans complain of dull characters, sloppy writing, and amateurish special effects. Marvel productions on the small screen have not fared much better. Recent MCU television series on Disney Plus included including Secret Invasion, about Fury's character, have been poorly reviewed and estimates suggest little watched. It does not bode well for the shows due to be released in the coming months. The the decline is surprising. For a long time, the Marvel brand seemed invincible. Disney bought the comic book company in 2009, and it became a prized asset. The 23 movies released between 2008 and 2019 grossed almost $23 billion in total, making Marvel the largest film franchise in history. Marvel kept standards high even as it increased production. The company released 2.75 films on average in 2016 through 19, up from 1.2 in 2018 through thir- in 2008 through 2013. Of those 23 movies, only one ranked lower than A+ plus on CinemaScore. Three films received an A+, awarded to fewer than 100 of over 4,000 films measured since 1979. Black Panther, 2018, even became the first comic book adaptation to be nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. Marvel pioneered an innovating, innovative cinema. Semi- Cinematic Universe Model, in which plot lines and characters were shared across films. As Marvel's universe grew, its competitors tried and failed to emulate its success. DC Comics, which owns Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman, set up and recently scrapped its Extended Universe, Warner Brothers has turned the Harry Potter franchise into a wizarding world. Universal twice tried to launch a dark universe of monsters such as Dracula and the Mummy, but both attempts failed after a single release. Efforts to build out Robin Hood and his merry men, Lionsgate, Power Rangers, also Lionsgate, and King Arthur and his Round Table, Warner Brothers all faltered. By the early 2020s, the MCU seemed set for further dominance. In 2019, Disney acquired 20th Century Fox, which held the rights to characters, including the X-Men and the Fantastic Four. The launch of Disney Plus that year made it easier for fans to keep up with the ever-expanding MCU and enabled the franchise to tell new stories in a serialized format. But instead of developing its position in pop culture, Marvel has struggled creatively and financially. Disney insiders suggest several causes for the slump. One is to do with personnel. Several trusted writers and directors have moved on. Many of the actors playing the most popular superheroes left the MCU after Avengers, Endgame, in 2019, and Chad Boswell. Mosman, the star of Black Panther, died in 2020. Last month, Disney fired Jonathan Majors after he was found guilty of assaulting and harassing his then-girlfriend. The actor played the villain at the heart of the multiverse saga, the story which would connect the films between 2021 and 2027. Another reason is to do with geopolitics. The first 23 films were all released in China, the world's largest theatrical market. But between 2020 and 2022, none was. China did not give a clear reason why, but it was probably building up its domestic film industry. Though this de facto ban is now over, Cinematic Universe's are hard to understand when audiences have missed several entries. Making matters worse, Disney Plus is not available in China, so fans cannot watch the TV entries. Yet part of the problem is of Marvel's own making. Since 2021, the MCU has released an average of 3.3 films and 3.7 television series every year, a rate that seems to strain audiences, internal creative teams, and special effects departments. For prospective viewers hoping to watch a new title, 33 films and 11 seasons of television is simply too much homework. The focus on the multiverse which draws on films predating the existing cinematic universe aggravates this issue. Audiences may yet tire of superheroes, much as they tired of westerns in the late 1960s, but for now the genre goes on. The third Guardians of the Galaxy film grossed $846 million, making it the fourth highest grossing film of 2023 and received an A rating on CinemaScore. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, an animated film by Sony, was also among the most popular films last year. Bob Iger, Disney's CEO, who initiated Marvel's expansion, has said the franchise can return to its former glory by slowing the pace of production. I've always felt that quantity can be actually a negative when it comes to quality, and I think that's exactly what happened. We lost some focus. He and Marvel's many fans will be holding out for the heroes. I'll close with a couple of letters sent to The Economist. It's in the stars. The extremely wide range of forecasts from investment banks for inflation and growth in the coming year is puzzling. It reminds me of John Kenneth Galbraith's view. The only function of economic forecasting is to make astrology look respectable. That was written by Attila Ilkson from Sagerties, New York. I was moved by your article on the Enduring Resilience of London. I work in the Lloyd's insurance market, which has been trading for over 330 years. We persevered despite an almost fatal financial crash, brutal terrorism, and the COVID pandemic. But I am reminded of my father, George, who as a 17-year-old in 1944 started work at Lloyd's. It was the time of the second blitz on London from September 1944 to March 1945, when thousands of V-1 flying bombs and supersonic V-2 rockets hit the Capitol. During regular air raids, the Lutine Bell at Lloyd's would be rung to alert everyone to the bomb shelter under the building, where the business of underwriting would continue. There were no warnings with the supersonic V2s. My father said it was a rather unnerving time, but that everyone just carried on working. To me, that sums up Lloyd's of London and London as a city. We carry on regardless. That was written by David Doe from Oxted in Surrey. The one thing that Everyone along the political spectrum can agree on is that there is media bias. No one thing but person. No one thing no one can agree on is who is biased and how much so. In 2012, the Al Smith dinner, a must for presidential candidates courting the Catholic vote, was attended by both Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. During his speech, Mr. Romney made the quip that I've already seen early reports from tonight's dinner. Headline, Obama Embraced by Catholics, Romney Dines with Rich People. The quick quip got a great laugh because everyone saw the truth in it. That was written by Paul Stutler from Apple Valley, Minnesota. That's all the time we have for today. This has been Mary Kiefer with a reading of The Economist. I hope you've enjoyed today's reading from the audio reading service of the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana.